Hi, I'm Susie On, and this is Reset. Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Laquan McDonald, Rihanna Taylor, George Floyd. Just some of the Black Americans killed by police officers over the past several years. Their deaths have outraged millions, sending people of all colors into the streets, demanding justice and demanding actions be taken to change the difficult and often deadly relationship between law enforcement and Black America. December 4th marks the 51st anniversary of one of the most notorious police killings in history. It happened right here in Chicago, when Chicago police, in what's now most often referred to as a murder, killed activist, organizer, and local Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and fellow Panther Mark Clark as they lay in bed sleeping. Justine Tobiash is in charge of WBEZ's archives, and she recently unearthed a broadcast we did December 4th of 1989 that takes a deep dive into the death of Fred Hampton. So we're doing a few things here. We're celebrating WBEZ's past, we're remembering the life and death of Fred Hampton, and we're highlighting the grim parallels between 1969 and 2020, when Black Americans were killed by cops and people took to the streets demanding change. Here's the original report put together by Carol Gray with help from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Hey, we always say the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to do. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. Fred Hampton, 21-year-old chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, shot dead by the Chicago police in a pre-dawn raid on his apartment 20 years ago today. Peoria, Illinois Panther leader Mark Clark was also killed. The official story to hit the press was that the police came armed with a search warrant at 4 in the morning to confiscate illegal weapons. They said they were fired at by the Panthers and had to shoot back in self-defense. At the time, state's attorney Edward Hanrahan confirmed their... The violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. Because of the climate of the times, there was some reason to believe the police version. Dennis Cunningham, attorney for the Hampton family. People may remember there were, uh, the Panthers swore in those days nationally, Huey Newton laid down an edict, they don't get past the doorstep. You know, you defend the place you're in to the death, and anybody, you know, who's captured in a raid is excommunicated. And Hampton himself always had a quick answer for why the Panthers were armed. We have to defend ourselves. We intend to defend ourselves. We did so in the past, and we're going to do it today, and the day after that, and the day after that. Because only through this proper example of the self-defense and the proper example of retaliation, and by letting these people know that we move from some basic laws, that anything that goes down on the oppressed people on the part of the oppressor, it should be reciprocal. And in plain, politician, workers' language, it takes two to tangle. But even people who feared the Panthers had to admit there was one thing the police account couldn't explain, the physical evidence of the apartment. There was only one bullet hole that showed a shot was fired from inside the apartment and 99 bullet holes fired from the outside in. Later investigations concluded the one shot outward was likely fired by Mark Clark as his gun hit the floor following a fatal shot through his heart. Flint Taylor, another attorney for the Hamptons, tells what happened when the police inadvertently left the apartment unsealed following the raid. 
The Panthers uh, organized tours to go through the apartment and to show everybody what had happened because, of course, Hanrahan was saying that it was a shootout and the Panthers had initiated it. And, and the Panthers brought the community, uh, thousands and thousands of people paraded through uh, that apartment in the next 10 days or so. And they showed them where the bullet holes were and they showed them the bloody mattress and they taught... And it was, you know, just that in itself was an incredible educative experience. The public outcry in Chicago grew loud enough to force the police into taking extraordinary steps to defend their actions. They built a mock-up of Hampton's apartment, and the local CBS TV station ran an exclusive of them reenacting their every move that night. I found this man laying with his head roughly the center of the bed, his body coming back like this. His two hands were laying over the, the bed like this, and just off or right below his uh, right hand was a 45 automatic. CBS went for it, but they had to rehearse it. Again, Dennis Cunningham. And they had to do it over and over again before the cops could get it right, because they were making it up. And uh, so they had these outtakes that showed them cussing, you know, and saying, ah, oh, you know, they'd open the door, no, and then you'd say the wrong thing, and then they'd have to start over. And so we got a hold of the outtakes, finally, in the case. And it was a joke, you know. I mean, it was really ridiculous. They also gave an exclusive photograph to the Chicago Tribune, which they said was the bullet-ridden door to Hampton's apartment, again, to show how they were attacked by the Panthers. The bullet holes turned out to be nails in the door. Their cries of self-defense fell on deaf ears as survivors of the raid began telling their side of the story. They broke into the door and they had flashlights and they shined the flashlights around the room and they started shooting. And they shot Black Panther Brenda Harris, 19 years old that night, was shot in the hand and leg. 38 now, she lives with her mother, works as a clerk, and goes to school to learn Spanish. I had my eyes closed a lot of the time, and one of the policemen thought I was dead. And I heard him say, this will look like she's dead. And when he said that, I opened my eyes, and he started cursing. And uh, some policemen, they kept telling me I better die. In the back room, Black Panther Deborah Johnson slept next to Hampton. Two weeks later, she would give birth to their son. Deborah had been in the back bedroom in, in this bed with Fred, and she went out. And then a cop went in and, and shot him through the head twice while he lay right there in the bed. Today, Johnson works in a law office. She's a strong woman with trusting eyes that show no trace of what she saw that night. When I was coming out of the back room, um, well, I was real pregnant. I had on a robe, and uh, one of the policemen grabbed open my robe. I didn't have anything under it. And they said, oh, what do you know? We have a broad here. I mean, I was so pregnant, it should have been no question. Another officer pulled my hair and kind of threw me into the kitchen area. Uh, I was handcuffed behind my back, and... Um, I only had on house shoes, and it was snow outside. When we got out, one of the policemen that took me out of the paddy wagon put a revolver to my stomach and said, you better not try to escape. I could hardly walk, let alone run. Initially, the Panthers were charged with attempted murder, but the charges couldn't stick and were soon dropped.
The survivors then turned the tables and sued Hanrahan and the police for violation of their civil rights and the wrongful deaths of Hampton and Clark. During the trial, evidence surfaced that shocked the country. Rather than being the isolated act of an overzealous police force, the raid was part of an FBI program designed to, quote, neutralize black militants, who Director J. Edgar Hoover thought were a threat to the country. Subpoenaed FBI documents revealed that the purpose of the covert counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, was to eliminate the possibility of a black messiah. Dennis Cunningham tells how COINTELPRO worked. It was, you know, so discord, write false letters, put it, make, he dropped hints that people are snitches and informants, you know, uh, set them up for criminal arrest, work with the local police to try and get them busted. And, and, and I mean, there's a tremendous literature in those files of how elaborate an operation this was how many people and how much energy and resources from the FBI was devoted to and how Hoover and a whole echelon of top dogs were completely consumed with it over months and months of time. I mean, it was the, the flow of paper is staggering. Hampton, although not named as a possible messiah, was considered such a threat. He was a rising star, and the national press was starting to focus on him. The following interview was with a member of a New York-based video documentary group. A lot of people that are outside of the black community who haven't been harassed till now, or even, even people in the black community that don't really know where the Panthers are at, how do you tell them that you are defending yourselves? All they hear, you know, like they see um, Black Panthers, violence, just like they see um, maybe hippies and violence or SDS and violence. And they think that, you know, like that's all you want to do is, is get guns. Um, what kind of, like even an education program, what are the, the Panthers into as far as that? Black people in the ghetto don't have to be educated. I know that, but like there are people, a lot of people who should be. And maybe you could, you know, like get to those people. Are you trying? I don't think there's anybody trying any harder and in their, in their attempts are being any more successful than Black Panther Party. We out there every day and educating, people learn by example. I think I don't think anybody has an argument with that. I think that when Huey P. Newton said that people learn basically by observation and participation, I think that everybody caught on to that. So what we're saying very simply is that if they learn by observation and participation, then we need to do more acting than we need to do writing. And I think the Black Panther Party is doing that. That we didn't talk about a Breakfast for Children program, we've got one. We're not going to tell you how many kids went to the freedom speech in Chicago, we're feeding 3,000 to 4,000 every week already, and I don't know how many all around the country. We're not talking about beginning to think about uh, treating people free when they need medical services. We're opening a free health clinic in the city of Chicago in less than three weeks. These are the type of examples that people can relate to. Hampton said the Panthers were the vanguard, there to help educate the public. We're moving to a level whereby the people are going to take over control of their destiny. They're going to take over control of that community. And the first way of doing this is dealing with the most uh, integral part of the fascist three-way oppression. We said demagogic lying politicians and avaricious, greedy businessmen. And we say fascist pig cops. But the one that's most evident, the one that's closest, the one that's more clear, the one that's more defined in the black community is those fascist pig cops. So what we're saying is, if the people can deal with these fools, 
we we would have taken a revolutionary step, a revolutionary leap, I should say. So that's the program that we think is going to move things to a high level. It's going to raise some contradictions. It's going to cause some antagonistic contradictions. We're prepared to deal with them, and we think the people are prepared to deal with them. And indeed, another threat to the FBI was that Hampton was reaching out beyond the black community. It's also important that the people in the peace movement began to more so identify with the Black Panther Party because people that believe in peace and people that want peace should deal and support very vigorously peacemakers. The Black Panther Party must be defined. It has to be out of necessity defined as peacemakers because we deal with defending ourselves and the people against those who break the peace. To keep an eye on Hampton, the FBI planted an informant, William O'Neill, into the party. Many believed that O'Neill drugged Hampton the night of the raid because no one was able to wake him up when the shooting began. What's known for sure is that O'Neill supplied a floor plan of the apartment to the FBI. And the floor plan was a layout of the apartment that showed the shape and location of the rooms and showed where the bed was and where the doorways were and uh, showed them where they could, you know, what they would be dealing with if they would come in, which, of course, since they came in the middle of the night and it was pitch dark, was uh, invaluable to them. For the next several years, the lawyers refused to give up on the case, even though the police took it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Jeff Has, a third Hampton attorney, tells how it was to argue the case before federal judge Sam Perry. Judge Perry was an 81-year-old white judge from Alabama who was not the least bit uh, going to ever allow the Panthers to prove that the FBI uh, killed their leader. Anyway, he said, well, you don't like anything as far as you're concerned except your way. And I, I said, well, Judge, there hasn't been anything that has happened. And he said, and you are not going to have your way. And I said, I know. My way is a fair trial, and I know I'm not going to get it, Judge. That is totally clear in this courtroom. And he said, you bet your life you're not going to get it. And I think he said rather succinctly uh, exactly what the circumstances were of that case. But against all odds, the lawyers won a cash settlement for the families and survivors. Fourteen years later, it was paid for by the city, county, and federal governments. Cunningham said that the trial papers produced over the years explained why the original indictments against the Panthers were dropped. Right from the start, when the FBI said it was investigating the raid, there was, in fact, a deal in the making. The FBI was pretending all during that time to be, uh, uh, you know, independent and in looking into it. And so then Hanrahan started to white mail them. And he said, you know, don't push this stuff too far or we're going to tell that you were in on it too. And that's when they cut a deal. And the deal was reflected in the memorandum that said, you know, okay, they're going to drop the charges against the Panthers and, uh, and the uh, grand jury investigation is going to not result in no police will be indicted. They'll just write a report, which is what they did. It was all hooked up. According to Cunningham, everyone felt vindicated in exposing the FBI, even though they weren't able to prove that the federal government actually intended to kill Hampton. The involvement of the FBI in setting up the raid was totally uh, intimate and indispensable, particularly in the provision of the floor plan. And the intention of the FBI to neutralize them is undeniable. So, you know... What's the difference? When you get to heaven, you find out the truth. 
the men who might already know the truth, the police, Hanrahan, and the FBI, refused to be interviewed. Twenty years later, many see Hampton's death as not just an accident of fate, but a deliberate act. Again, Flint Taylor. On December 4th, the Tribune and uh, the papers were talking about a shootout and that kind of thing. And then you see the the Boston Globe last month when they were talking about Huey Newton. They talk about the Hampton case and they talk about the murder of Fred Hampton. So at least we have, that is a palpable change in the way history, and and that's uh, some kind of almost mainstream history, not just movement history, views uh, the event. So what's the legacy of that bloody night that silenced two angry young voices 20 years ago today? I think that there are a lot of people who have a lot of respect for Fred Hampton. Bobby Rush, alderman of Chicago's 2nd Ward, was Minister of Defense back in those days. He said of the many things Hampton's death did, one was to change the face of Chicago politics. Rush said the black community, once willing to vote Democratic no matter what, turned its back on the Democrats after the raid. If indeed Fred had not sacrificed his life, then the political victory of Harold Washington certainly would not have existed because as a result, and as a response to Fred's murder, uh, the black community defeated Edward Hanrahan, the state's attorney, uh, who was one of the uh, fair-haired boys uh, of the Democratic Party. Certainly some had indicated that he was going to be uh, the person who would replace uh, the original Richard Daly as mayor. And uh, uh, the black community rose up and, and defeated uh, Hanrahan when he, was up for, when he was up for re-election. And the black community has not been uh, shackled to the Democratic Party since. Jeff Haz says Hampton's death was another blow from which the black community has not recovered. I think when you study the facts of the Hampton case, it's as clear a case as probably as well documented as there'll ever be of, of a state assassination. Haz adds. We don't see people of the stature of Fred Hampton uh, in leadership positions. And we think one, one of the reasons why there are so many um, destructive elements in the black community, why drugs and gangs have taken such a hold, is because, to some extent, the COINTELPRO program was effective. It did wipe out black leaders like Fred Hampton. And it's no accident that Hampton and, and uh, Malcolm and Martin Luther King and a number of other people who probably could and would be leading the black community are dead. Deborah Johnson agrees. The- exception of Louis Farrakhan, there are no leaders in the black community to harness the rage she sees every day. Johnson vowed not to get involved or join another group after she left the party. But now she's having second thoughts. I see the same things occurring in 1989 that occurred in 1969. Police brutality, the attitude that permeates this country is one of it's okay what is done to African-Americans in this country. It's acceptable by law. Uh, you will not get punished for it. And we see that not just in Chicago, but across the United States. Also, the um, control and manipulation of the media in terms of distorting what happens to us in our community and not reporting things that are uh, pertinent to our survival. Also, I see very vividly an escalation of denial of uh, medical care for African-Americans and minority people.
basically it's a repeat to me of 69 and I'm not satisfied with myself that I'm not involved in that. So my vow to never join an organization is null and void. If Johnson's right, if it is 1969 all over again, will the public be more prepared for battle this time around? Again, Fred Hampton. We think that people who don't want to be wiped out should struggle. We just think they should struggle properly. We don't feel that people that don't struggle have a right to win. We think that if people go into the ring with Muhammad Ali and they don't even put up any resistance, and if they wonder why they got whooped, then they have to be idiots. They have to be buffoons. You have no right to win because you didn't fight. So we say very simply, if you dare to struggle, then you dare to win. If you dare not to struggle, then you don't deserve to win. Nobody, including the Panthers, knew the danger they were in or how numbered their days really were. The following conversation took place only a few months before Hampton was killed. We're not worried about them killing anybody because uh, I think they're about tired of wiping out power. They wiped out Martin Luther King and they wiped out Malcolm X, you know what I mean? And they wiped out all these people and these people were produced. So I think that in the near future you'll see programs uh, initiated by the government that they'll probably have the CIA protecting people like us. Because when they wiped out Huey P. Newton, there was Cleaver popped up. I know very well that they said we wish to God that we had have kept Huey P. Newton on the scene because this motherfucker is out of his mind. <laughs> right on. Right on. Right on. No one who heard Hampton speak would argue with the FBI about one thing. He was a powerful voice who was hell-bent on leading his people from his early days in the NAACP to his brief life as a Black Panther. I believe that I'm going to do my job, and I believe that I was born not to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die from sitting on a piece of ice. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die in what I was in the things that I was born for. I believe that I'm going to be able to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the international revolutionary protest struggle. And I hope that each one of you will be able to die in the international protest revolutionary struggle. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? Black Panther leader Fred Hampton, shot dead by the Chicago police 20 years ago today. For WBEZ, this is Carol Gray. Original material from the WBEZ archives. Thanks to WBEZ archivist Justine Tobiash, Carol Gray was the original producer. Special thanks to the Pacifica Radio Archives. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. If you like what you hear on the Reset podcast, tell a friend about it. And take about 30 seconds to leave a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Susie Ann. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right back here tomorrow for more Reset from WBEZ Chicago.